This is not the media. This is hell. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to, this is hell. Today on the show, our guest is sociologist Sarah Beth Kaufman, author of American Roulette, The Social Logic of Death Penalty Sentencing Trials. If you are a woman, the chances you are very, very small you will ever be charged with committing a homicide that is determined to be a capital offense worthy of the death penalty. But if you're a man, in particular a black man, in particular a poor black man, the likelihood you'll be charged with a capital homicide that deserves either a life sentence or a sentence of death is greatly increased. But we are assured that when it gets to the point of determining life or death, that's when the justice system really shines and makes certain it gets it right only punishing the very worst of the very worst. But what if that determination of life or death is made based not on justice, but race and class? We'll find out in a few how the death penalty breeds a society driven by vengeance when we talk to Sarah Beth, who is assistant professor of sociology and anthropology, as well as an ethnographer at Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas. You can follow Sarah Beth on Twitter at S. Kaufman Beth. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. This week's question is, what you got on your face right now? What you got on your face right now? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins a This Is Hell medical face mask. Protect yourself from the coronavirus while telling everyone how you feel about this stupid global pandemic by having the words This Is Hell splashed across your face. Going to a protest but want to be protected from the virus, then you will want to be the person with the best answer to this week's question from hell. You can see and order your very own This Is Hell face mask right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Listeners have contacted us saying their mask has already arrived, showed up in time for the protests in Minneapolis. So who knows what you will need to protect yourself against next. Get your This Is Hell face mask today by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support or be the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, which is what you got on your face right now. What you got on your face right now. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email it to either of us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Alex, how are listeners answering the question from hell so far? But first of all, Alex, how are you doing? Uh, doing good enough to let everyone know that uh, my mom is not going to be the answer to any question from hell. <laughs> not gonna work. You still have time to change. You still have time to change. Bradley R., you still have time to change uh, your response. My mom I, is almost never going to we, uh, win you a question from hell. What, I, what was not on my face today, for the first time in months, I was leaving my house and I was like, there's something I'm forgetting. There's something I'm forgetting. I always get this feeling when I'm leaving my house. I'm sure it's some sort of phobia. Couldn't figure it out, couldn't figure it out. I got to the front door here when I realized I didn't have my face mask on. <laughs> I had my This Is Hell face mask right next to the door. I was going to wear it to the studio today. Completely forgot my face mask. I can't believe it. Alex, how are people answering this week's question mail? What you got on your face right now? What you got on your face right now? Garrett S. says, the spilled blood of enemies of the revolution. Mm. Hammered sickle emoji. <laughs> nice. Sebastian M. says, Frown tears, probably cat spit after sleeping on the couch. Laddie, ugh. Laddie O says, 
Hey, Dirty Sanchez. Oh, wait, I forgot. Oh, I grew a mustache. Oh, Phew, but what's that smell? God, God. Uh, Let us not repeat that ever again. Report user? <laughs> uh, Kevin O says, a very poor excuse for facial hair, but it's the best I've been able to accomplish. <laughs> what you got on your face right now? Adam A says, my palm. Bradley R says, my mother. <laughs> my mom. Dan K says, egg, rotten. And Jeff G says, poison ivy. My wife insisted on clearing out an old flower bed. Now we're both covered. <laughs> Jeff, I don't think you're supposed to do it with your face. <laughs> Alex, will have more of your answers to this week's question mail following our guest. Again, email us your answer to chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com or post them on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio or direct message them to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. We will be announcing this week's winner at the end of show tomorrow, Thursday, following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. So get your answers in now. Live from Hangover Country, this is Hell and the neighborhood where these here studios are located. West Ridge, up on the far north side of Chicago, was suffering from a bit of a hangover yesterday morning after what neighbors were calling a harrowing night, Monday night of what many were calling looting throughout the area. Fear was spreading online and fast by the time I got home from the show yesterday. There are reports of long lines going down the block outside of the gun shop that is about 10 blocks west of us and just outside of Chicago's borders, which allows them far more liberal gun-selling privileges than they would have within the city's limits. And by all accounts, it was all white dudes in line, although a lot of them were wearing face masks, so that's very thoughtful of them, concerned about the safety and well-being of others while buying a gun to shoot the hordes they're imagining will be at their front door at any minute. Even the liquor store across the street from us here at This Is Hell, uh, above Carrie's Lounge, uh, the liquor store across the street, about a block east, one of very few liquor stores in a neighborhood politically dominated by the Muslim and Jewish religious communities, even that store was being reported online as being looted. If a store was boarded up, the assumption online was it must have been looted. If a window was broken, then looting must have occurred. The fear was palpable within community groups online. Any place could get hit at any time by an overwhelming throng of violent criminals plundering everything they can as quickly as they can without any help from the police and without any chance of justice or retribution for those whose property was stolen or destroyed. Which was weird to me, as I've been saying on the show the last couple of days. It's not like Devon Avenue, the main thoroughfare throughout our neighborhood, offers the would-be looter all that much. Luggage of suspect origin, cell phones from stores that advertise they will unlock any phone, and they mean any phone. Aluminum cookware that I suspect doesn't help in your personal fight against Alzheimer's. There's Islamic reading rooms and pop-up Christian ministries, knockoff electronics with names like Samsung or Toshibo. The live chicken shop was shut down by the city, but apparently they reopened. So unless looters are seeking shoddy carry-on travel bags, a phone with a checkered past, potentially dangerous pots and pans, a Koran, a Bible, shoddy appliances, or live chickens, this neighborhood may not be all that desirable to looters. But I forgot about the few, the very, very few liquor stores in the area and how they may have what looters want, want what they desire. I've heard a nearby Target was targeted for looting, so it was preemptively shut down, as were all Target stores. 
There were then rumors they were all looted, although when images of one of the stores was posted online, there was no sign of any damage, only signs that said the store was closed. And then another Target store had seemingly the same issues, broken windows, but no real signs of looting, at least in the images that people were posting online. So what was looted? What was closed? What was boarded up? And what had broken windows? All of those instances were being lumped into one big pile of scary looting that was tearing its way through the neighborhood and into the suburbs. But the problem is, none of it was looting. None of it. There were not vast mobs of people roaming around attacking storefront after storefront. The so-called looting at the corner liquor store, according to the people who worked there, who I talked to yesterday, was done by three kids from the neighborhood, all of whom they recognized. That's not looting. That's a smash and grab. And they've been happening in this area and other more wealthy parts of Chicago for years now, especially in the rich parts downtown. A flash mob will show up at a swanky store in the loop or on the mag mile. Sometimes a car, often stolen, drives through the front window. People pour into and quickly out of the store and nobody ever called that looting because that's not looting. What is happening in this neighborhood is not looting by definition. Looting is when goods are stolen during a riot or a war. Here on Devon Avenue Monday, in broad daylight, when the three kids robbed the corner liquor store, there was no war taking place on Devon or anywhere in the neighborhood. There was no riot taking place. There was no protest within miles in any direction. To call these acts of vandalism and theft looting is to purposely associate them with protests against police violence that seems to be an intentional delegitimization of the protests. A vacated suburban shopping mall in the middle of nowhere that gets its windows broken and some stuff stolen has nothing to do with protests happening 20 miles away. That's not looting. That's a robbery. And it should be reported as a robbery. What this neighborhood is experiencing is a rash of robberies, not looting. The only connection it has to do with the protests is what Mary Lori Lightfoot is that Mary Lori Lightfoot militarized and cordoned off the wealthiest neighborhoods, which were the targets of protesters at the beginning of the uprising, abandoning the neighborhoods. That's what the mayor did, making them all vulnerable to the thefts that did occur beyond the segregated enclaves of the rich downtown. The neighborhoods and their mom-and-pop small businesses, what are celebrated as the backbone of the city, were left to their own devices as those with real power stayed behind the lines of their militarized force, protecting them from the rabble that have had enough of the 1% looting of their lives. No, what we are experiencing up here on the far north side of Chicago is not looting. Looting needs a war or riot to be taking place, and no such war or riot, or even any peaceful protest is happening anywhere in the community. No, this is not looting. This is not a war. This is not a riot. This is the weaponization of language to purposely delegitimize protests. This is an uprising. But for the state and its supporters in the media, any uprising against the status quo that enforces inequality with the barrel of a gun means... This is 
hell. Coming up on This Is Hell, determining who gets the death penalty is more a game of roulette than anything that could be described as justice. More of your answers to this week's question from hell. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show live stream and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Live from the United States where property has more rights than people. This is hell. We're told that only the very worst of the very worst get the death penalty through a long vetting process that gets justice right, the epitome of a well-functioning system. Here to tell us what really determines who gets a life sentence or a death penalty and the vengeance it legitimizes as a simple solution to a complex problem, sociologist Sarah Beth Kaufman is author of American Roulette, The Social Logic of Death Penalty Sentencing Trials. Welcome to the show, Sarah Beth. Hi, Chuck. Thanks for having me. This is a fascinating book, and one of the reasons that I I really enjoyed this is because even if you are somebody who is opposed to the death penalty, would like to see the death penalty abolished like I am, it gave me a better understanding and a a clearer idea of why I should be opposed to the death penalty. So if there are people in the audience who are listening right now who are saying, well, you're just preaching to the choir, this is going to change the tune of the choir. You write in 1998, when I was 22 after college, I worked as an investigator at a small nonprofit law office in New Orleans, Louisiana, that represented poor people accused of capital murder. And you describe how one of the first cases that you were assigned involved a man named Albert. He was 19, accused of committing murder. Uh, he spent uh, he and his family were raised in a plantation culture that still exists in parts of the southeastern United States. The family had lived and worked on the same farm continuously since Albert's grandparents were enslaved. According to a court record, the, for, the farm owner, Joey Smith, a direct descendant of the owner of the plantation on which Albert's grandfather was condemned to servitude, hired Albert to kill his second wife. Albert considered Smith to be not only his boss, but also an archetypal godfather, a parain, as it is called in Cajun country, who was responsible for his family's livelihood. Albert had been following Joey's orders since he was young and believed that he and his family would be in danger if he disobeyed any request Joey made. Sarah Beth, that story is just amazing. Again, this is 1998. This is only 20 years ago, but it sounds like it's from over 100 years ago. Do you think the impact of that plantation culture stretching all the way back to slavery and those kinds of familial relationships that were still affecting Albert 133 years after the end of the Civil War against slavery has abated any since 1988? How much does that plantation culture still have the kind of that kind of direct impact on African-American lives? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, You know, I think that it is one of the problems with the kind of north-south divide in this country. Um, I'm from the northeast, and I know I'm talking to you in Chicago, and it's very hard for us to imagine um, the kind of life that history has. Um, in southern states. And I live now in Texas, um, which was uh, in part a plantation state um, during the era of cotton. But in Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, um, where plantations were a way of life, um, there's so much that is still alive about that period of um, the state's history. So the geography of a given town or city, the neighborhoods, um, and absolutely the family relationships are still very present. And I think that's difficult for us to imagine as people who grew up far from uh, plantation culture. But absolutely, I think it's still 
extremely relevant today. Because something I've heard my entire life, and I'm, I'm sure that you've heard it too, is white people saying, look, the problems of slavery, you know, slavery ended before I was even born, a hundred years before I was born. That has nothing to do with me. What would you say to somebody who says that that is something that is very much in the past and has nothing to do with me as a privileged white person? Yeah. Well, there's a whole um, literature, a whole bunch of scholars who write about this more clearly than I do. Um, Sadia Hartman is one of them. A book called Scenes of Subjugation was very influential in my own writing. And this um, Hartman, along with others, Orlando Patterson, really develop um, historically the ways in which slavery is present today. So in capital trials, um, what I focus on here, and I'll just focus on that, um, one of the ways in which the past is very present in capital trials is through the concept of dangerousness. And I write in the book that in, I I watched um, capital trials across the country. So both in the South and in the North, um, one near you in Illinois before Illinois abolished the death penalty, Um, several in Louisiana and Texas, Um, and what uh, in in Pennsylvania and uh, Virginia, and what they all had in common was this use of dangerousness. Um, The prosecutors argued in Texas, by law, they have to prove in order to have the jurors vote for death penalty, they have to prove that the person who is the defendant will be a danger in the future, which, of course, is an impossible prediction, right? And it is a very controversial uh, scientific proposition to say we can predict that this person sitting before us will be a danger to people in the future. Yet this is part of the logic of capital sentencing and a very problematic part. But among its problems is the link between dangerousness and race. Um, So Angela Davis very famously describes criminalization as one of the masquerades behind which race um, uh, creates fears. Um, And it's true that when we talk about dangerousness, when we say that man is a danger, there is an image of um, of blackness that stems from slavery. And this is, you know, used, I mean, our, our president tweeted just a couple of days ago, right, about thugs on the street. You know, these are um, in language and in gesture, um, in tweets, these um, words about dangerousness, criminality, brute, thug, super predators that's used by politicians and prosecutors are linked um, to blackness historically. Let's talk about that dangerousness for a second, just in this case of uh, Albert. He write that there was a little question that Albert had been involved in killing Joey's second wife. He confessed to shooting her at Joey's instruction and helping to make it look like a robbery. But Albert tested as having an intellectual disability and he had never committed any other violent act. Joey was suspected of involvement with the mysterious disappearance of his first wife, had been convicted of federal drug trafficking. The inequality that our office was trying to reconcile was that Joey... Nearly 20 years, Albert Sr. was sentenced to live the rest of his years in prison, while Albert was to be executed for an act he committed while still a teenager. What would you say to someone who argues that 
well, Albert should be punished more than Joey because Albert did the actual killing. Is Albert, in your opinion, in this situation more dangerous? Is he the worst of the worst? <laughs> you know, um, so much of what I learned, both by working with people in prison and by um, writing this book and doing observations, is that, you know, you spend time with a person, and I did spend time with Albert, um, you know, in close proximity, um, hours and hours. The notion that he is going to endanger lives in the future is entirely absurd to me. Um, and I, um, you know, I feel that strongly as, as a person. And the problem with capital trials is that they depend on these very complicated kinds of sets of resources where lawyers have to convince jurors, everyday people, right, with all of their prejudices and beliefs and um uh, that one person is going to be dangerous or not. And Joey, the, the owner of the um, land where Albert's family had been enslaved for decades, um, he had the resources to be able to convince whomever that he was, you know, not a danger, or at least that he wasn't worth their time fighting to... Um, get on death row. And Albert did not have those resources. Yeah, he was um, defended by a public defender. Um, and eventually, our office was able to give him a voice. Um, he, was, he is a very shy man. He would never um, be able to kind of defend himself in um, the way that we um, imagine a defense to work. And he depended on um, the experts who were supposed to tell his story. And they failed him. And that is a very big part of this story, is the failure of uh, lawyers who are supposed to be uh, advocating for their clients and who, who really fail. Um, and so, you know, in becoming a member of the team that did, whose job it was to tell Albert's story, I did come to know him. Um, and the idea that he is a person who now is still in prison. Uh, Joey uh, Smith actually died in prison. Albert was resentenced um, to a life sentence. He still, you know, lives um, in Angola, Louisiana prison. And, you know, sure enough, he is not a danger to anyone. Um, so this notion of dangerousness is is extraordinarily problematic, um, both on its face and, and from a moral perspective. Is he seen, I, I just thought of this as you were saying that, is mm. he seen uh, more as dangerous because of his mental disability? Well, that's another great question. And I don't know the answer to that. I mean... I think that for jurors, and there's research, a lot of research with capital jurors, for jurors, mental illness can go a number of ways, um, or what we, we term disability these days. Again, a lot of this is about communication, right? If um, Albert had someone who could speak in court about his um, disability in a way that would provoke sympathy, I think that's absolutely possible. But I also think, and research shows, that jurors can be really alienated from people who are ill. 
they can really um, sort of double down on this notion of monstrosity, especially when um, mental illness, schizophrenia in particular, intersect with notions of race, right? So being, you know, considered crazy um, can really um, alienate um, a defendant from a jury. But again, one of the really beautiful work of social psychologists and capital defense lawyers, um, along with all of the team who work on um, their behalf, is trying to tell the story of someone who has suffered with mental illness or with disability in a way that allows a jury to understand why Albert or someone else would get to a point in their lives where they would raise a gun to someone else. And, you know, I don't think that Albert or really anyone else, you know, very, very few people on this earth do I think are evil. Yeah, I think that people are um, what um, is, is becomes of them. And Albert had a hard life. And almost every single one of the people that I met on death row and that we defended had childhoods and young adulthoods that were really unconscionable. And, um, and that's a hard story to tell. You point out that capital sentencing ostensibly sorts murders into death-worthy and non-death-worthy categories, but neither the relative heinousness of the crime nor simply the race and class of the defendant determines who will face the harshest of the criminal punishments in the United States. I just want to stop there for a moment because that is how many of the uh, people who do get the death sentence are determined. You point out that the first determining factor is race and that another determining factor can be class. What happens when we only see the problems with uh, capital punishment within those frameworks of race and class? Yeah. Well, I'm I'm glad you asked that because it is more complicated than that. I mean, first of all, just to begin, right now there are only 28 states in the United States that still have the death penalty on the books. And of those, very few actually use it. So the first thing is, is that, um, you know, a particularly heinous murder, right? And what a heinous murder is, is something else we could really talk about, right? Especially today when, um, you know, I just heard you say property is valued over people, right? People are dying now and we're not calling that murder, but, but we should certainly be thinking about the concept of murder and why we focus on the worst of the worst as individual people who um, kill as opposed to um, more systematic forces that kill. But, um, you know, a murder has to be committed in a particular location, in a particular state, and within that state, in a district with a district attorney who's willing to spend a lot of the district's money pursuing the death penalty. And beyond that, they, that district attorney in, in Texas, for example, um, you know, there's 253 counties here in Texas, and fewer than half of those have ever had a death sentence. Um, so even when we think about Texas as a death, you know, um, as a death state, even that isn't the case. Um, and it costs a lot of money to pursue um, death penalty. And so you have to have um, someone willing to do that. And, and one of the even more problematic things is then um, 
district attorneys, and I interviewed some and others have interviewed others, you know, they make determinations about which cases they'll take to a jury based on whether they think a jury will agree with them. So one of the problems long um, documented with capital punishment is that there is um, what's called defendant-victim bias. So um, there is an over-representation of white victims in death penalty cases. If you are, if someone you love is the victim of a homicide and you or that person sorry, that person, that family member that you love is a victim of a homicide and they are black or Hispanic, they are much less likely to have a district attorney um, try to get the death penalty for um, that defendant. Um, So there's a lot of both legal and um, governmental financial considerations that go into who gets tried. And then for the very, very few people who do face death sentences, juries um, are the ones who ultimately um, decide whether a person should be sentenced to death or sentenced to life in prison for a capital murder, which are the only two options in all states. And that is what I really look at is that distinction. And what I find is that, as I said, there's a lot of um, ways in which elite interests, uh, interests of white supremacy, interests of um, economic elites um, influence that decision as well. And you mentioned this uh, participation of victims' families and how this came about with the modernization of the death penalty in the 1970s. You mentioned the participation of victims' families, victor support uh, testimony, which the Supreme Court says should provide jurors with a quick glimpse of the impact of the victim's death stretches well beyond its legal limits. Victim supporters who appear in court and perform their role in a socially hallowed manner receive the confirmation of judges, courtroom staff, lawyers, and audience members. This gives their emotional appeals for the death penalty, immeasurable power, those who do not appear or do not perform their role in culturally normal ways do not wield that same power. Has an increase then in victor, victim uh, supporter testimony led to an increase of death sentences? Well, um, I'm going to that the last part of your question isn't exactly the answer to perhaps victims' influences because okay. the you know across the country the, the decline of death sentences has to do with so much. Um, what I will say about victim sentence, uh, victim participation in sentencing and capital trials is that these are people who have lost loved ones, um, often you know violently, brutally, and you know horribly. And this was some of the hardest stuff for me to watch. Um, you know, fathers, mothers, friends talking about the impact of losing a loved one. And, um, you know, it, it's, it, I, I, you know, I cried, defense attorneys cried, jurors cried. You know, this is really, this is the stuff that of nightmares, right? But it also, um, you know, depends on the victim's family and friends' ability to communicate their pain. And this was really, really something that um, disturbed me. Um, I saw victims' families treated badly um, and others really um, honored. And the, you know, I, I, I haven't, I've 
you know, I saw, as I said, you know, 15 trials across the country and um, a couple of them stand out. Um, One whose family um, really appeared disorganized, um, who were loud and angry in the courtroom. Um, and, you know, <laughs> perhaps for good reason, I, I don't, I didn't get to know them, but that anger didn't translate well. I could see the ways that jurors and audience members and judges reacted. And it wasn't with the same kind of tears and sympathy that victims' families who are quiet and organized and who were sad, but not angry, um, were received. And and there is this kind of notion of how to mourn, yeah, that is white. Um, it is um, middle class. And this is the real problem with victims' influence. Not that victim pain isn't real or that it shouldn't be listened to, but that it shouldn't affect sentencing dependent on the resources available to victims' families to perform right, to perform their pain in institutions that might have also had a hand in causing their pain. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a, an area that the Supreme Court has really disagreed about. Um, at, at some point not too long ago, victims' testimony was considered um, uh, verboten in capital trials uh, for this reason, because it's, it's not fair. Um, to ask people to, uh, you know, sing for um, a defendant's punishment uh, for so many reasons. Is that performative nature unique to capital trials? I understand that you're critical of uh, victim supporters having too much power in capital trials. Is this unique to capital trials? And if so, can it, should it be reformed in some, some way or just eliminated? Yeah, um, another great question. Look, I um, <laughs> there's nothing to be reformed about the death penalty. Um, the way that we do it is wrong. The notion of the state killing its own citizens is wrong. And that's full stop. Um, now, should victims be involved in criminal justice? Perhaps, but not in the way that we currently do it. Um, In my classes, I teach about other ways in which justice um, might be reached, including restorative justice, which is used now. I don't know if you have heard of restorative justice. Is that something you've talked about in your show? Um, Yes, we've talked about it quite a bit. Yeah. So in a restorative justice model, there isn't this notion of the divide between the victim and the defendant in the same way. What there is is a community that is harmed. And there's no question that when there is violence in a community, it causes harm and that that community should solve the problem. Yeah. And it's not just about one person against the other and that if one person who committed the violence will also suffer, then that will somehow cause the person who was suffering before to suffer less. That's a real fallacy of our criminal justice system. Um, And there's research with victims in criminal justice who, you know, are harmed by the process and some are helped. Um, But overall, this is not good for victims or defendants. 
What would be much better is to recognize that we are part of a whole and part of a lot of small holes. So some schools now work on restorative justice models, some university campuses, and even some um, areas of juvenile justice and other areas work on restorative models whereby it is the job of the victim and the um, defendant, along with the elders in the community, and this is a tradition that comes from the Maori um, people of New Zealand, where elders um, play a, a significant role, and they come together and they figure out how to repair harm. And and that is what we should be doing in cases of violence. And it should indeed involve the people who are harmed. But this model is so far from anything like that, um, that there's no, there's no reforming it. You write that the death penalty trials take place in courtrooms across the country, like other criminal trials. But with a major distinction, when prosecutors seek a death penalty, jurors or juries rather than judges, hear evidence to determine the defendant's sentence. That's unique than anywhere else. Capital juries not only determine whether a defendant committed the murder, they also decide whether that defendant then deserves a sentence of life in prison or death by execution, the only two options, as you're pointing out, for a defendant convicted of capital murder in all death penalty states today. Does that increase or decrease the likelihood of a death sentence, or does that vary by jurisdiction? Because it would seem like, you know, we all want to live in a democracy. It would seem that this is a more democratic process as juries are determining the sentencing. Is capital, are capital trials more democratic than other trials, and do they have an impact on the likelihood of a death sentence? Mm, yeah, and these, this is a really good question at the heart of kind of one of the important parts of uh, democracy, which is participate, participation in governance, right? Um, look, there is so little participation in the criminal justice system by lay people that I am loath to say anything bad about jury participation. Over 90% of all criminal sentences in our country are handed out without a jury and without, in many cases, even a judge trial. Most of those are meted out between, um, you know, overworked public defenders and, um, you know, sometimes also (laughs) overworked prosecutors, which is really, again, just such a sign of a broken system. So should juries be more involved? Is there more democracy when juries are involved? Perhaps. Juries in this country also are extremely disempowered when they are involved. They don't understand the power of a jury, which which could be significant, right? There's jury nullification. There's um, other instances in which juries can really... um, Uh, exercise their democratic power, but that doesn't happen in most cases. Now, sentencing is different than deciding on the facts of the case. And, And when we're talking about criminal sentencing, again, there is such a disconnect between the kind of human, um, uh, you know, logic of what should we do to make this harm better? And Should we give this guy either 25 years or 35 or 50 years? So the system is rigged. There's no way that a jury can participate in sentencing without really um, reifying the state 
extreme, extreme punitivity. So it's a complicated question. Um, and, you know, a lot of people are talking about whether some of the solutions to the criminal justice system is to reinvigorate juries. And I'm quite cautious about that because I think that juries in this system as it stands, are not going to fix what is fundamentally um, an an extraordinarily and illogically punitive system. How important is theatricality in a capital trial case? Because you point out how when you are talking to the jury, you're talking to lay people who are trying to determine sentencing, they do not have the expertise of legal scholars, of psychiatrists, of psychologists, of behavioral experts. They don't have that kind of expertise. So I would imagine that what a capital trial would look like would be something that would have more of this theatricality and trying to play to emotions more than evidence. Can that kind of theatricality, especially in capital trials, can that trump evidence? Absolutely. And, and um, as a sociologist who thinks about kind of knowledge also, I don't, I don't think that they can ever be separate. I don't think we can talk about, you know, what some people think of as facts uh, without emotion. So you can't talk about the facts of a murder without it being emotional. Um, uh, however, I, I think it's very significant that the Supreme Court has mandated that this is the only area in which juries are, are mandated nationwide to do sentencing. Jury sentence in other, a few jurisdictions, including Texas sometimes around the country. But yes, jurors are not experts. And what matters here um, is the way that the evidence is communicated to them. And, you know, public defenders and legal scholars, critical race scholars um, have been talking about this um, necessity to perform Um, in court for a very long time. I'm certainly not the first. But when uh, capital punishment is on the table, jurors have to listen to sentencing evidence, evidence from psychiatrists, psychologists. And this is touted as kind of the best of individuated sentencing in our country. Like, this is something that we should model, right? There's lots of experts, lots of money. And part of what struck me so deeply as I watched these trials is that the evidence could be so small. I I saw a trial that where a a case was made for the death penalty. Really, the only thing that was on the prosecutor's kind of agenda to emphasize about future dangerousness aside from the conviction of the murder, which was significant, of course, right? But you have to prove beyond that. They focused on the existence of a book in the defendant's cell, The Art of War. And this kid wound up getting the death penalty. And I say kid because he was a teenager. Um, He was 19 years old. And I saw another case in comparison, and I write about this in in the book, a person who was on trial, who was convicted of murder, who had committed many, many, many other violent crimes and who received a life sentence. A lot of that was about the ability of the lawyers and their team to communicate with jurors, not about the reality of whether or not someone is worse, quote, than the other. Um, There is nothing... (laughs) 
there is no evidence without communication of the evidence in these trials. Um, and there's, there's no getting around that. You write about what you refer to as the narrowing structure of the capital punishment field and how it is problematic. And you point out that uh, you describe the mechanisms that distinguish the vast majority of the 2.7 million non-negligent human deaths in 2016 from those 17,250 that the law defines as criminal. In the chart that you provide, you say of those 17,000-plus homicides, around 13,000 are in death penalty states. It then narrows down to 4,000 being aggravated homicides in death penalty states, down to 2,500 solved aggravated homicides in death penalty states, narrowing further to 56 actual capital trials and, in the end, 32 death sentences. When I was looking at those numbers, one in seven homicides is solved. One in 44 goes to capital trial. Yet almost three out of five of those capital trials end in death sentences. To you, what explains the high likelihood that if you go to a capital trial, you will get the death sentence? Is that simply a function of how efficient and how good of a job that the justice system does in finding the worst of the worst? Mm. Um, Well, before we talk about its efficiency, I just want to point out that... um, you know, the cost of a capital trial is you know, such that it's, you know, many times of over and above uh, a plea for a life sentence, say. But the cost actually isn't calculated because for every capital trial um, in a given jurisdiction, there are more than likely um, life sentences. And that money is completely then wasted on this huge death penalty trial that could have been pled out um, to a life sentence. So first of all, Yes, efficient, but also spending millions and millions and millions and millions of taxpayer money to get um, a death sentence, even above the ones that are secured. Um, Second, what is really interesting is that we don't actually have good data on capital trials. One of the real difficulties of this project when I started, I just couldn't believe that there wasn't a record of capital trials around the country and which end in death and which end in a sentence of of life imprisonment. Um, And so those numbers are ones that are hard-won numbers that I I gathered with the help of lots of wonderful research, um, undergraduate research assistants here at at Trinity University. but they are um, not always that efficient, as you as you say. Um, so if you look back at the numbers from 2000, you look back at the numbers from 1996, um, I suspect that it, and I, I, again, these numbers don't exist, but um, around the country, if there is a two-thirds um, death penalty rate, I would be surprised. Anyway, um, you know, as I said, these are very expensive. They're up to district attorneys and district attorneys have to use their county's money. So I would say they should be damn sure that they're going to um, get a, a death sentence and they're not. And that's a huge waste of money. So I, I, would call that inefficient <laughs> and inefficient um, to the tune of, of hundreds of millions of dollars um, a year in, in some counties. 
and human lives as well. Uh, you write well, the lack of yeah. Uh, you write the lack of systematic information on capital trials is itself salient. Sociologists believe that an agnotology, and thank you for teaching me the word agnotology, <laughs> or absence yeah. of knowledge is not an accident. Missing knowledge should be treated as an active rather than incidental aspect of socio-political power. Rather than think yeah. of a lack of capital trial data as an oversight, I began to consider why a systematic review of capital sentencing trials might jeopardize or destabilize an established source of power. What is that established source of power that this absence of knowledge benefits and how do they benefit from that absence of knowledge? Well, I will. Um, I had a wonderful research student this um, past year who wrote an honors thesis whose name is Frances Kennedy, um, and she gathered data on capital trials at the county level. Capital trials are paid for mostly at the county level, and she looked at um, California. So one of the things to be gained by not knowing these numbers is how much actual money gets spent pursuing death sentences. So in some counties, there is a ratio of two life sentences for every death sentence at trial. That means that the numbers, and, and nobody wants to hear this, that a death sentence, a single death sentence out of a single county actually costs three times the numbers that are publicized. That's not something that district attorneys and people who are pro-death penalty want um, advertised. Uh, yeah. <laughs> You figured we'd want to know. You know, it's kind of part of the democracy that we have. You point out that two decades ago, an influential death penalty scholar, Austin Surratt, said that state killing should provoke the question, not what it does for American society, but what it does to American society. Among other things, Surratt argued the U.S. capital punishment system legitimates vengeance, intensifies racial divisions, and distracts Americans from the hard work of solving complex problems by offering seemingly simple solutions. You then add capital sentencing today is etched through with these dynamics, imprinting more deeply the most shameful tendencies in U.S. society under the guise of what scholars call super-due process. First of all, isn't the entire justice system, not just the capital trial system, isn't the entire justice system based on vengeance. How do you see vengeance playing out more? I mean, I understand killing somebody is the ultimate act of vengeance, but how do you see vengeance playing itself out more in capital trials than all other trials? Isn't our justice system just a system of vengeance anyway? Hmm. Well, we do have an adversarial system, um, which means that there is a contest over how to um, both translate um, events and how to how to punish, um, and absolutely, uh, as I said, I, I think that the way that the system works from the very um, you know lowest level of misdemeanor um, on up to capital sentences is ethically, morally um, bankrupt. Um, and we've got good. Um, Nicole Van Cleve in, in Chicago right, wrote about um, lower-level courts and, and how decision-making is entirely a game involving race um, and um, uh, bargaining between um, um, district attorneys and, and um, public defenders. Um, the, the justice system is complicated. Um, it involves 
a tremendous amount of financial um, uh, obligations, as they're called, um, and um, that that are are levied on people who have no money. I mean, it is um, not necessarily always about vengeance. It's not necessarily easy to see how it's about vengeance. But it is easy to see that it's completely broken. Um, now, I do think that what what I have here is a case, again, that is really important to be told, not because it affects that many people in, you know, in comparison to the hundreds of thousands of people that are processed through um, an unjust criminal justice system um, every year, but because it is held up as doing it well, right? In a, in a world where, um, you know, Cook County is, is, you know, there's no question <laughs> operating terribly, inefficiently, immorally, et cetera. Um, what I don't want is for people to say, you know, let's get juries involved in sentencing again. Let's look at how capital trials are done because then we'll, you know, we'll really take the racism out of it, or then we'll really take the, the inefficiency out of it, or then we'll take the Immoral, immorality out of it. Um, you know, this is a system that is built around capitalist white supremacist norms. And even at uh, its kind of expertise best, right? Expertise filled best. Um, it is uh, illogical and immoral. You point out how when they are trying to select the jury for capital trials, they are seemingly looking for people who believe in the idea of what you call punitive citizenship, something you were mentioning earlier, and that is the idea that the role of the citizen is to punish other people for doing the citizenry wrong. So that would seem to, they're looking for people with a certain political point of view when they're trying to pick the jury in a capital trial. Is the anti-death penalty movement then an anti-vengeance, anti-punitive citizenship movement? Is is the moral or even political argument one of uh, disapproval of vengeance and a punitive mm. nature of citizenship? Mm. I, you know, I think it's a, a, a diverse movement. Um, people get involved for a lot of reasons. Um, but you can't get involved on a capital trial unless you are, agree that you could levy the death sentence. And that's really something that not people don't always know. You are not allowed to serve on a death penalty trial unless you answer questions saying, yes, you could consider the death penalty. So the jurors, as you said, are not, um, you know, all of us. Um, by a long shot, yeah. So people who have objections to the death penalty for religious reasons, for moral reasons, for reasons having to do with, um, you know, a violent state or reasons having to do um, with being against vengeance, as you say, all of us are excluded by the law from serving on capital punishment, which is another really shocking and problematic part of this supposedly democratic process. You write that courtrooms are white spaces, suffuse with expectations of white supremacy. Can you take white supremacy out of the courtroom without eliminating white supremacy from the greater society outside the courthouse doors? Yeah. 
And and that's not my term. Again, I really rely on critical race scholars here um, who make this argument. And and the answer is no. Um, and and I feel clearly and strongly about this. Um, we have a system that excluded um, and continues to exclude um, Black Americans from um, the fruits of democracy. Um, the via voter um, disenfranchisement, right, which means jury disenfranchisement. If you are a black American who has a felony in a state that doesn't allow you to register to vote, it also doesn't allow you to get on a jury, right, because that's where voter, that's where jury um, pools come from is voter registration. Um, No, no and no. Um, and again, I, I write in a in a tradition that is is greater than me. Sarah, Sarah Beth, uh, I really really enjoyed your book, and I've been really enjoying our conversation. I've got one last question for you. Sociologist Sarah Beth Kaufman is author of American Roulette: The Social Logic of Death Penalty Sentencing Trials. Sarah Beth is assistant professor of sociology and anthropology at Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas, and you can follow Sarah Beth on Twitter at s Kaufman. Beth, the final question that we have for each and every one of our guests, don't worry, this isn't just for you, is what we call the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write, capital punishment depends on the exacerbation of pain and exaggeration of conflict. Does capital punishment cause more pain unnecessarily and heighten conflict? Is capital punishment both unnecessarily painful and racially divisive? Because I guess my bigger question is about what's happening around us right now. Sarah Beth, how far would ending the death penalty go toward addressing the injustices by police, by the state, that are being protested as we speak? Could its impact on, say, its logic of vengeance go a long way to addressing the way police currently function and exist? Not at all. Um, What's happening out on the street right now um, is much bigger than this. Um, and I guess I'll, I'll, I'll close with some, some names of, of um, black scholars who are working on police violence and who will be able to answer these questions better. Um, Michelle Jacobs at the University of Florida Law School, Syria Lang at Lehigh University, um, looking at health and policing. Um, Thelma Bryant-Davis at Pepperdine University, um, who's a psychologist. These are some people who are working on um, directly the impact of police violence. And the death penalty is perhaps the epitome of the struggle, Um, but it is in no way encompasses the struggle. Um, And, you know, I... um, I am speechless in in rage and support um, of the Black Lives Matter movement um, and um, urge you to interview some of those women if you can and uh, look them up, read them and uh, cite them. <laughs> well, we, we've been having tons and tons of people on the show to be discussing this over the last, I don't know, what, 23 years, however many years we've been doing this. But I want to appreciate the, I appreciate the fact of the list that you just gave us because of all the dozens and dozens, hundreds of scholars that we've had on the show. Every one you just mentioned were ones that we have not had on the show. We're constantly right. seeking great <laughs> guests for our show. So listen, Sarah Beth, if you ever have any other suggestions for really good guests for our show, please send them along because I'm going to have Alex write down all the names that you just listed 
listed, and we're going to try to get every one of them on our show. So thank oh, you so great. much. Thank you, and thank you for taking this moment seriously and for taking these issues seriously um, for a long time now. So I wish you health um, and wellness. Um, you know, for the for the future. And I appreciate the fact that you actually did not, you know, so often people think that they're supposed to act like an automaton when they're on one of these shows talking about serious <laughs> things. It's great to hear somebody not censor the, their emotions, and I, I just really appreciate it. Thank oh, you so much you. for being on the show, Sarah Beth. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. And now on that end of that very serious conversation, Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, this week's question from Hell is, what you got on your face right now? What you got on your face right now, the person with our favorite answer, gets the This Is Hell medical face mask. Get your This Is Hell face mask today by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Or be the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell, which is... What you got on your face right now, you can post your answer at our Facebook page, tweet it to us, email it to us. Alex, do you have more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell? Yeah, what you got on your face right now? Jeremy T. says, Lori Lightfoot's most recent press event in which they tried to frame the police as an ethical and, or professional and ethical. Hmm. <laughs> All right. Zach N. says, a frown. Rob H. says, misery. Pete V. says, my mom. Oh, God, dude. But also, it'd be funny if it was my dad. Dude. Uh, Jeffy D says, whatever came splattering out of the fan when capitalism hit it. <laughs> Steve S says, a Botox smile. Dan C, glasses and fatigue. Michael K says, a pair of sunglasses that Rowdy Roddy, Pi- Rowdy Roddy Piper gave me. Damn. Uh, if that is true, uh, Michael, you got to post a picture of that. Uh, what you got on your face right I think now? it's a reference to they live. Oh, damn. Wait, did he give them the glasses? or? Uh, he attains the sunglasses that makes him see the truth in the world. Oh, because he had to fight that other guy for him. Okay. Uh, Corey G says, a giant rubber bullet welt. Dave W says, a bong. Wally R says, can't tell, blinded by the tear gas of freedom. And MGB says... A long swab, because I had to get tested for COVID today. Alex will have the rest of your answers to this week's question mail on tomorrow's show. Again, email us your answer to chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. Post them on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. DM them to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. Alex, who is on tomorrow's Thursday's live show, streaming at 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com. Uh, real excited for this writer, William C. Anderson, uh, is going to be back on the show to talk about his truth out piece, Forget Looting, Capitalism is the Real Robbery, uh, and Jeffy. William's been on a couple of times before. I think both times he was on with Zoe Samudzi. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, so this time it's just going to be William, and we always enjoy speaking with either William or Zoe, so we're looking forward to having him back on the show. It's been a couple of years. Tune into tomorrow's show, streaming live, 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com, or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream to hear the rest of your answers to the, this week's question from hell and to find out if you've won. Also tomorrow, Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. Thanks to Alex for producing. Thanks to our guest, Sarah Beth. The planet's on fire. So, yes, this is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.